last Sunday morning, my family and I were at a golf course. Not golfing, of course. We were there for a wedding. And uh, thank you so much for those of you who prayed for our daughter, Kristen and David. Um, Their wedding came off spectacularly. Is that a word? Spectacularly, wonderfully. It was just awesome. And uh, we are glad to be back here this morning and ready to worship and learn together with our gathering family. Some of you are straining. Can you see me okay, or should I stand on the riser? Stand on the riser. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, it just seems like I'm so far away, way, way, way from you. Well, let's begin this morning. We're talking about this passage that uh, Sean read for us, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. 25-year-old Christopher Miller was arrested after he robbed a shoe store in uh, the town of Toms River, New Jersey. After serving a 15-year sentence, he was released from a state prison. The very next day, Miller, who's now 40 years of age, took a bus from Atlantic City to Toms River, the same town, and he went to the same shoe store he'd robbed 15 years earlier. Employees tell police that he entered the store and demanded cash, just like he did 15 years ago. When the employees refused, Miller became agitated and grabbed the money from the cash drawer. He got a whopping $389. And then he took all the workers' cell phones and forced them into a back room, just like he did 15 years ago, and fled on foot. Police caught up with him just a few blocks later. The money was stashed in the gutter and the phones in a garbage can. (laughs) You might be thinking, what kind of a dumb criminal is going to go back to the same store and commit the same crime all over again? Was the guy stupid or what? But then you read Colossians chapter 2, and you might ask yourself a similar question. What kind of a dumb Christian would go back to a belief system that takes away his freedom and his liberty? You see, that's why Paul writes to the church in Colossae, see to it that no one takes you captive again by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. This section of Paul's letter to the Colossian begins with a warning in verse 8. Paul was never afraid to sound the alarm, even if someone labeled him a troublemaker. He told it like it was. And, And we know the reason for his concern. We've been studying the book of Colossians for a few weeks now, we know that someone is out to capture the allegiance of these new Christians to whom Paul is writing, and he wants to make sure that doesn't happen. He's going to take, <clears throat> take steps to make sure that doesn't happen. False teachers pose a threat to the health and well-being of the local church and its leaders. That was true back in the first century, and it's true today. People continue to propagate spiritually uh, hollow and deceptive philosophies and pass it off as spiritual truth. But this teaching, Paul says, is empty of content. There's no substance to it. The claims are misleading and, and untrue. 
He's, he talks about philosophy. So we should spend a moment there to, to just clarify that Paul, Paul is not, he's not talking against, he's not speaking against all philosophy or philosophy of every kind. This is not a blanket condemnation of the study of philosophy in a school of higher learning. He's not against the tradi- traditional Greek schools of philosophy like Plato and Aristotle. His remarks are focused on this particular factional teaching that is circulating in Colossae, the so-called philosophy of these false teachers. Paul says this teaching is nothing more than empty deceit, which has been inspired by the stoicheia, the elemental spirits of the world. This Greek word stoicheia, which is translated elemental spirits of the world, is an ancient term which is widely used for spirits or the spirit world, stoicheia. And so it's quite safe to assume that Paul is is likely using it here in Colossians chapter 2 to refer to demonic spirits. So while false teaching is handed down by human tradition, its original source is demonic. So you just have to call false teaching for what it is. It's not just mistaken or misplaced theology. It's demonically induced teaching, which has as its purpose the pulling away of young Christians from the faith. The fundamental problem with this philosophy is that it's not according to Christ. It's not in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all right. So now we come full circle to Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So that's the warning. But then he goes on in verse 9 and following to explain why this is so important. Why is this such a big deal? Why do we need to be careful about what we're, what we're learning or what we're listening to? Why is it so important? Why is it essential for us to avoid hollow and deceptive philosophies in our day and age? Precisely because of the riches that belong to us in Christ Jesus. We are rich in Christ. And we don't need any other spiritual teaching that is not in keeping with the gospel. We're rich in Christ. And we don't need any supplemental teaching that seeks to add something to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We have all we need. We're rich in Christ, and we don't need to settle for something else or second best. So in verses 9 through 15, the Apostle Paul gives us a a precious summary of what it means to be in Christ, to be part of his family. And I'm indebted here uh, for some of these ideas Uh, to Richard Lucas, who's got some great insight on these verses from Colossians chapter 2. So first of all, we have fullness in Christ. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. So the essence of God the wisdom of God, the holiness of God, all that God is, is found in Christ bodily. He is the essential and adequate image of God 
to us. In Christ, we see the face of God. In Christ, we see the love of God. In Christ, we see the head of all rule and authority. In Christ, we have the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is our everything. And Paul says, in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells. That's why we make so much of Christ. Because all the fullness of deity dwells in Him, in Jesus. And if that's not enough, and it is, Paul goes on to say, and you, meaning the Colossian believers and those who follow in their tracks like us, you have been filled in Him. Pew! There goes my puny little brain, blown to smithereens again by these deep and rich theological ideas. We have been filled in Him, filled to all the fullness of God. If, if, if Christ has in Him all the fullness of deity dwelling in Him, and if we are in Christ, then we are filled up in Him. Woo-hoo. So why then, why, why then would we go back to a belief system why would we go back to the same shoe store again and give up our freedom? In this remarkable statement, Paul affirms that believers share in Christ's power and His authority over every principality by virtue of their union with Him. They got nothing on us. Principalities and powers got nothing on us. Because if we have fullness in Christ, we have authority over them as well. But the only authority we have is the authority that Christ has given. Hence, we have everything we need in Christ. Everything we need for life with God, we find in Christ. And Philippians chapter 2 echoes that. God has exalted Him, Jesus, and bestowed on Him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, with a passage like that, we could just say, amen, do the benediction, let's go home. Better yet, let's go to Pete and Cindy's and have a barbecue. But the fact is, Jesus fills up our emptiness. He fills up our loneliness. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Wow. Thank you, Lord. The fullness of Jesus takes care of your past mistakes and blunders. The fullness of Jesus takes care of your future worries and concerns. The fullness of Jesus takes care of your present decisions and fears. You, if you are a believer in Jesus, have been filled in Him. And so we can sing. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. 
No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Amen? You're feeling empty today? Run to Christ, get filled up. Feeling insignificant today? Planning to hold a pity party at 2 o'clock this afternoon? Run to Christ instead, get filled up. Jesus fills us with himself. What more do we need? In him dwells the fullness of God Almighty and everything we need for a life with God we find in Christ. Well, we said that these six or seven verses from 9 to 15 give us a priceless summary of what it means to be in Christ. And we've been talking about fullness in Christ, but we also have fellowship with Christ. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So in this section now, Paul seems really anxious to to show us exactly what it means to be in Christ and to have fellowship with the one who has been raised, who was dead and yet has been raised again. So once more, Paul chooses his words very carefully and he's very precise in the tense of the verbs that he uses. Remember grade 10 grammar? Here we go. (laughs) You were circumcised in him, he writes. You were buried in him, he says. You were raised in him. All past tense, as if it's already happened, you see. It's a done deal. Theologically speaking, it's a done deal as far as Paul is concerned. It's a done deal as far as Jesus is concerned. You have been circumcised. If you are a believer in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you're circumcised without hands. You've been buried with Christ and so identified and united with him. And you've been raised with Christ to a new life that you live only in his power. So it's a done deal with the daily development expectation that comes with it. What Christ then did, the believer now shares with him. It's already happened. But but what does this mean? let's, Let's back up the boat a little bit. In Christ, you were circumcised. What does that mean? Well, Paul uses circumcision here metaphorically to describe a spiritual experience, which he says is is akin to the putting off of the flesh. So there's, uh, and it's also made without hands, so that means that there's there's absolutely nothing that we, we, we can do to make this happen. This is not done by us, it's done to us. By the grace of God alone, believers no longer live in the sphere of the flesh and its influence, but we have been transferred into the kingdom of light by the grace of God, and we walk now in His righteousness, which He has given to us as a gift, and there's nothing that we've done to get it. Does that make sense? In this circumcision performed by Christ, Christians have been removed. You see, there's a, there's a very painful removing of some skin when circumcision happens, and, and that's, the, that's, the, that's the metaphor here. 
Christians have been removed from their solidarity with Adam and his sin, and we are now in solidarity with Christ and his righteousness, and we're now able to live in the righteousness of God as a gift from the grace of God to us. Does that make sense? Furthermore, in Christ you were buried. Again, past tense. In the second metaphor drawn from the work of Christ on the cross, Paul says that the Christian rite of baptism uh, represents this identification with Christ in his death. He died to sin, we die to sin. And in connection with the burial, in, 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 in quick connection with the burial, he talks about resurrection. What good is burial in, in a Christian sense if you, if you don't have resurrection that follows, you see? It did for Jesus three days later, parts of three days later, he was resurrected from the dead, and now it says in Christ you too were raised. So dying and rising with Christ signifies death to the power of sin and Satan, and it also symbolizes the, the power, the new life that we're given in this resurrected life. So we were resurrected spiritually from the grave of sin and death and we're resurrected to new life and there will be a resurrection that we have to look forward to. So it's kind of a double metaphor. Romans 6 echoes the same truth. It says, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, certainly, absolutely, certainly, without a doubt, no questions asked, be united with him in a resurrection like his. <laughs> That's a little lenoology in there, but you know, it's pretty, pretty accurate. It's, it's certain. In fact, that's the word he uses. We shall certainly be united with him. Paul's so certain about it, he describes our resurrection in the past tense. You were circumcised, you were buried, you were raised. It's a done deal. Thank you, Jesus. It's a done deal with the daily development expected. So we have fullness in Christ. We have fellowship with Christ. What's next? Is there anything else? How about freedom? We have freedom in Christ. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all, all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Yes, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but we have been forgiven by God and uh, through, our, through repentance, which is a gift from God, and Faith in Christ, which is also a gift from God. Dead is an awful description for people, isn't it? It's an awful description of the spiritual state of human beings who are living apart from faith in Christ. They're, they're dead. They're dead. Ephesians 2.1. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a flattering term to, to tell somebody, hey, you're dead. Well, on the streets of Detroit, that takes on a whole different kind of connotation, you know. But to tell somebody, I mean, who, who wants, especially in Canada, I mean, we're so nice. We'd never tell somebody, hey, you're dead in your sins, man. You, you're just dead. You don't believe in Jesus, you're dead. 
Not a flattering term, but we, we can't escape it. I mean, it's right there in Colossians. And Ephesians uses the same terminology. You, he's writing to Christians, right? Who, who have repented of their sins and they've, they've got faith in Christ now. They're, they're walking by faith in Christ. He reminds them, but don't forget, you guys were once dead. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. <clears throat> without Christ, we can do nothing to get life. In fact, without Christ, we don't even want life. He's the one who sparks that desire. He's the one who grants that ability to repent. He's the, he's the one who gives us the gift of faith. Because dead men don't have that capacity. You're, you're dead. You're dead. That means without life. <laughs> without breath. Without sustenance. Dead. And all of us who are believers today, by the grace of God, were once dead. You say, well, I, I don't remember that. I mean, I, I trusted in Jesus when I was five. Well, okay, but before that day, you were dead. You were a dead little five-year-old. <laughs> Our little granddaughter's uh, 20 months? 19 months. Oh, I was off by a whole month. She's 19 months old, and she comes over once in a while, and, you know, she's just all pure delight to us, absolute pure delight, until she grabs hold of Grandma's hair and just yanks it. And Grandma goes, no, 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 honey, no, nah, that's not nice. And she goes like this. <laughs> and the next chance she gets, she grabs Grandma's hair again and yanks it, you know, kind of looks right in her eyes and goes, pulls it. 20-month, 19-month-old little sinner. She's, she's dead. <laughs> she's dead in her sins. She needs the gospel. And she'll get it in, in short order. <laughs> we were empty. Now we're full. We were dead. Now we're alive. We were blind, but now we see. We were once barren, but now we are full of Christ. We've been set free from the bondage of death, made alive together with Christ, and our sins are forgiven. And Colossians 2.14 <clears throat> talks about the record of debt that stood against us. What is that? Well, in the ancient world, the, the record of debt was actually a written notice of indebtedness. I, I guess it would be similar to a, a company that gives an invoice. Here's your record. This is how much money you owe us. Pay to Canada Salvage $5,219 by the end of the month or we're going to get you. It's a record of debt. When we were kids growing up in Edmonton, my sister Linda is here with us for the wedding and a couple of weeks of uh, vacation. And, and, and I remember when we were kids living in Edmonton, we lived just down the street from a, uh, a grocery store that was owned and operated by a Chinese gentleman named Louis. So the the, uh, the name of the store was very creatively Louis Grocery Store. So we would go to, down to Louis, and my, my folks had a tab there. And they would send us down for a loaf of bread or a quart of milk or whatever else we needed, or a chocolate bar and a pop and chips or whatever I think I needed, and we'd just put it on the tab. And my dad would have to square up at the end of the month, or Louis uh, you know, would be knocking at our door. We had a record of debt at the local grocery store down the street. We had a record of debt. And, and Paul uses this word picture to characterize 
each person's indebtedness to God because of sin. And because of our sin, we, we owed a great debt to God. But because of the nature and frequency and depth and magnitude of our sin, it's a debt we could never, ever, ever repay. Ever. We could never repay it. Not in a billion, gazillion, trillion years. But Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. He paid it all. He paid it all. He paid for your sin and mine. He paid your penalty and mine. He canceled the debts. The record of debt is canceled, the Scripture says. We were not only forgiven for all of our sins, according to verse 14, but we were also delivered from all the powers of evil, according to verse 15. So the record of debt is canceled. The rulers and authorities disarmed. They're still around, but they don't have a lot of power. These two things go together. The canceling of the debt, the disarming of the rulers and authorities. You get them both when you come to faith in Christ. <laughs> you know, there's no two-tier operation going on here. You don't have to become a better Christian or a tithing Christian or a member of a local church in order, in order to, to have this power that God gives us. The debt's canceled, authorities disarmed. That's why the finished work of Christ on the cross is such a big deal for us. Nevertheless, even though these uh, demonic forces, these rulers and authorities are disarmed, even though they, they, their, their power is extremely limited, they're still around, and they still exercise <laughs> their stuff, and so we continue to struggle against them, right? Have you noticed that? We still struggle against the, the evil forces of the world, and and uh, Ephesians 6 talks about that. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. That's what we got to look forward to. <laughs> Each and every day. In addition to all of these, Paul writes, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. So that just, what a word picture that is. You know, fiery darts coming at you, left, right, and center. Make sure you've got that shield of faith up. Make sure you get enough exercise with that, that shield. Shield in one hand, sword in the other, right? Word of God, shield of faith. And so we fight the good fight until our last breath. We have to take our stand against the enemy because he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can chew up and spit out. And he'll do it every, every stinking chance he gets. He loves to do that. After serving 15 years of his sentence, Christopher Miller was released from the state prison. The very next day, he got on a bus and went back to Tom's River, back to the same shoe store he robbed 15 years ago. He robbed it again. He got caught again. He was put in prison again. Colossians 2.8 lays down this warning for us. See to it that no one takes you captive again by philosophy 
or empty by, through hollow and empty philosophy. Don't do it. Don't you get on that bus. Don't you go back to that place. Stand firm. Resist the enemy. Submit to God. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Every day. Every day. Every day. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that Paul's words would sink deep into our hearts. If we really believed that someone was trying to take us captive and put us back in prison, if we, if we really believed the church was susceptible to hollow and deceptive teaching, uh, of course it would make a difference in how we live and how we love the people around us. But Lord, for whatever reason, rather than covering a multitude of sins, we get irritated with each other's sins. Rather than welcoming one another without grumbling, we guard our own space with complaining. Rather than using our gifts to serve each other, we hoard our gifts to satisfy ourselves. Rather than administering your multifaceted grace to one another, Lord, we just withhold it from one another. And yet we're supposed to be filled with all the fullness of Christ. God, have mercy on us. Jesus, we thank you for canceling the record of debt that stood against us. We're also glad that you've already disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Oh, so Lord Jesus, please bring the gospel to bear in fresh ways in our relationships. We don't want to love by guilt, but by grace. We don't want to love by fear, but by faith. We don't want to, we don't want to love just so we can get something from people, but because we've received everything from you. Jesus, you're the one who loves us deeply. You're the one who's covered not just a multitude of sins, but all of our sins. You're the one who always welcomes us without grumbling. You're the one who always serves us and gives us grace upon grace. So whether you return in 15 minutes or in 1,500 years, Lord, free us to love for your glory today. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.